Thank you for checking out this sermon video here at Hope Church. We are so excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. You are joining us for our series called, If My People, Experiencing the Power of God Through Prayer. If you're joining us for the first time, I wanna be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Do us a favor and text NEW TO HOPE to 94090. After you hit send, you'll get an immediate response from our team with a short form for you to fill out so that we can get to know you better. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Enjoy the sermon. I want to begin this weekend by asking you a few questions. How many of you believe that this world that we live in is broken and is desperately needing a supernatural, spiritual awakening. Let me see your hand. How many of you would agree that even here in our own nation, we need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God to change us socially and morally and spiritually and culturally? Let me see your hand. A lot of consensus. Then how many of you believe the city, Las Vegas, that we call home, is also in need of a mighty move of the hand of God. Let me see your hand. All right, so we're all pretty much in agreement that that's what we need. Then I want to ask you one more question. I don't want you to raise your hand, and I don't want you to answer out loud. Why is this not already happening? And honestly, part of the answer to that question is sitting in this room and joining with us online. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to open it to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God speaks to his people here in the Old Testament And says something that is profound, speaking to the heartbeat of these very questions that we're asking today. Second Chronicles chapter 7, we're going to begin reading in verse number 11. Now to give you the context, Solomon has just finished building the temple. And Solomon has just offered a prayer of dedication for the temple. And here's what it says. Verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he'd planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then, then I will hear from heaven 
will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Did you hear it? When we desperately need God to move, and and we just all said by raising our hands that we need God to move in our world, we need God to move in our nation, we need God to move in our city. And I think if we kept narrowing the circle in, we'd say we need God to move in our community, we need God to move in our church, we need God to move in our family. Notice that the scripture doesn't say if they will. It says, if my people will. E.M. Bounds is one of the greatest authors on the subject of prayer from a Christian perspective that you'll ever want to read. Listen to what E.M. Bounds says. Part of the blame lies at our door. If we do our part, God will do his Around us is a world lost in sin. Above us is a God willing and able to save. Listen to this. It is ours to build the bridge that links heaven and earth. And prayer is the mighty instrument that does that work. God says, if my people, What often happens with the church is we look at the world around us, we look at our community, we look at our city, we look at our nation, and we immediately begin to play the blame game. We want to blame politicians. We want to blame government. We want to blame sports heroes. We want to blame Hollywood. We want to blame celebrities. We want to blame social media. But the reality is they're not the problem. They are simply symptoms of the problem. I have two objects with me up here on stage. And these are two very commonly used household objects. These are, you'd find something like this hanging on the walls of just about every home represented in the room. A lot of times people will take this object, this is a mirror, they'll hang it in the room as a form of decoration. But a mirror and and this particular object, a painting, a work of art, are really two very different things. They're often used in the same way. They're hung up on a wall and they're used to decorate a home. But a mirror is limited. All a mirror can do is simply reflect and reveal what is already in the room. All a mirror can do is be a reflection of that which already exists in the room. Now, this painting is a work of art. It's something very different. This painting is hung on a wall as decoration, and it doesn't simply reflect and reveal what's already in the room as a work of art. This particular work of art, what it does is it communicates the heartbeat of the artist, and it inspires a response of the people that see it. That's what art's supposed to do. It's supposed to communicate the heart of the artist, and it's supposed to to create a response and inspiration to respond to what we've seen as we look at the art. You say, why are you talking about those two illustrations? Here's why. For too long, the American church has been merely drifting as a mirror in society. 
You see, all we do is reflect the same dreams, the same values, the same brokenness, the same division, and the same dysfunction. We're like a mirror hanging on the wall of the world. And when you look into the church, you see the same thing that you see out in the world. We're just reflecting and revealing what is in society. Especially if you think about it this year. COVID, the pandemic, the coronavirus... The world responded with fear and anxiety and trepidation. And often when you look inside the church, you see the very same thing. People wringing their hands and disturbed and anxious, forgetting that we have a God who's sitting on the throne. Or whether you look at the injustice that we've seen played out in the streets of America this year. The church has reacted many times with the same indifference and the same hate. You look at politics. You look out into the world and you see division and you see distraction and you see dysfunction. And unfortunately, when you come inside the church, you see very much the same thing. It's just a reflection of what exists in the world. When in reality, God has hung us in this world, not to be a mirror, but to be a work of art. You see, we have been designed as a masterpiece by a master author who desires to communicate through us his heart to a world, and he desires through us to inspire a desire in others to know him and to hunger for him and to follow him. Let me show it to you in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, why I chose this particular illustration In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, for we are his, say this word out loud, workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is the Greek word poema. Sound familiar? We We extrapolate an English word from it. You know what it is? It's the word poem. This word workmanship describes a masterpiece, a work of art, something created by an author. The scripture here says we are his, we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are those works? Christ in us, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, more than ever before, Las Vegas, America, and the world. They need to be able to look at the church and not simply see a reflection of what they already are. They need to look at the church and be amazed at the glory of God that is being manifested in and through us. So where do we start? If we want to be that kind of church that is a manifestation of the glory of God that communicates to the world around us who he is and inspires in them a hunger to know him and to follow him, where do we start? Policy fights? Protests? Social media campaigns? Civic engagement? Listen, I'm not saying there's not a place for any and all of those things in a civilized society, but that's not where we as the church start. The greatest weapon we have been given in the fight to change the world is prayer. 
We have been called to be a people who pray. Now some hear that and laugh even at the notion. With the complexity of the world's problems, with the challenges that lie before us today, seriously, pastor, you're suggesting that what we need to do is we need to pray? Do you believe, pastor, that prayer is that powerful? No, I don't believe prayer is powerful at all. But I believe the one we pray to is powerful. And he's the only one that can change the world. We need God to move, and God has chosen to move in response to the prayers of his people. And therein is why I think the answer to the original question, why don't we see this happening already? I'll tell you why. Because God's people aren't praying. We're launching into a series this weekend called If My People, experiencing the power of God through prayer. And for the next three weekends, we're going to call us as a church in a variety of ways to begin to pray together as the people of God. Andrew Murray was a pastor and author in South Africa in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Andrew Murray, as an author, has probably impacted my life as much as anybody that has written. I read a daily devotional that's about as thick as a phone book. For you millennials, you can Google that and find out what that means, a phone book. It's about as thick as a phone book, and this devotional is just Andrew Murray's life of sermons, and it so impacts my life. Listen to what Andrew Murray says about prayer. Listen to this. God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. I want to read that sentence again. I want it to impact, impact you like it did me when I first read it. God rules the world. We all said it, man. The world's a mess. It's broken. We need God to move. Listen, God moves the world. God rules the world and his church through the prayers of his people. Did God have to do it that way? No, he's God. God means you can do it however you want to do it, right? But God has chosen that he rules the world through the prayers of his people. Listen to what he says. That God should have made the extension of his kingdom to such a large extent dependent on the faithfulness of his people in prayer is a stupendous mystery and yet an absolute certainty. Andrew Murray says, the fact that God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people literally blows my mind. But even though it blows my mind, it doesn't change the fact that it's absolutely true. God calls for intercessors. In his grace, he has made his work dependent on them. Listen to this. He waits for them. What if God is ready? What if God is ready to pour out his spirit. What if God is ready to usher in another great spiritual awakening? And he's simply waiting on his church to get so desperate that we cry out to him together. 
for him to move. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we can somehow, through our prayers, create a move of God in our city, our nation, or our world. But I am suggesting that we can create an atmosphere for God to move should he choose in his sovereignty to do so. And this this atmosphere is created through the kind of prayer that's described in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I want to read verse 14 again because in this verse... God uses four phrases that I believe communicate four different heart cries as we seek him in prayer. Look at verse 14. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So I'm going to ask two big questions tonight. Here's the first one. How do God's people need to pray. How do we need to pray? Well, first of all, the the, the first thing I want to say in answer to that question is we need to pray together. We need to pray together. Notice how he said, if my people, that word people is a very important Hebrew word. It's not speaking to people as individuals. It's speaking to people grouped together. If we were writing this today, it'd say hashtag peeps, right? It's, it's speaking to an entire group. It's speaking to us together as the people of God. He's not here addressing us praying individually. He's talking about us as the people of God being this work of art in the world, getting so desperate for God that we come together and we cry out to God for a mighty move of God. John Franklin did a lot of study into the book of Acts and the prayer ministry of the church in the early, in the first century. Listen to what John Franklin said. The greatest workings of God come by corporate prayer. And we will not see the power of God in sufficient measure to transform the world around us until we pray together. God in his sovereignty has determined that something happens when we pray together that transcends praying separately. Pastor, are you suggesting that I don't need to pray privately? No, that's not what I'm suggesting. There are places in the scripture where we're given instruction about private prayer, about getting in our closet and praying. What I am saying is when you look at the church in the book of Acts, you see a church that was mightily used of God to turn the world upside down. As a matter of fact, we're sitting here this weekend, 2,000 years this side of the church in Acts, And most of us today know the gospel as a direct result of the ministry of the church in the first century recorded in the book of Acts. God used that church to turn the world upside down. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. In 26 of those chapters, the word prayer is mentioned. And in most of those instances, it's not individuals out there praying. It's the church together crying out to God in prayer. We should understand this. Jesus said it in the Gospels, Mark chapter 11. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of what? Now, this is important. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, my house shall be called a house of worship. Oh, plan a big worship concert. People show up. Man, we love to worship. He didn't say, my house shall be called a house of preaching. Bring in the celebrity preachers. People line up to hear them preach. 
He didn't say that my house shall be a house of missions. We, we want to reach the world with the gospel, and we do. He didn't say my house shall be a house where you get your needs met. He said my house shall be a house of what? Prayer. Meaning that as the people of God, we should be known as a people who can move the heart of God through prayer. I'll tell you a testimony that happened this week. It's a testimony of God's power when we pray together. There's a couple in our church before COVID broke earlier this year already started out 2020 in a bad way. They got a diagnosis from a doctor. They'd been to see a doctor. The wife was feeling just some things weren't exactly right, and they, they went in for a, an annual checkup, and the doctor discovered a, a tumor that had been located. And he said, don't, don't worry about it. It's probably nothing. As they began to investigate, sure enough, the tumor began to, 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 to spread, and the diagnosis was severe cancer. They said, but we think we can get this tumor and get it out. By the time they got ready to do the surgery, the tumor had metastasized and the cancer had spread throughout the lungs. Cancer had enveloped the heart. Cancer had begun to spread down the leg. And by this point, the diagnosis is bleak. This couple in our church reached out and, and just had us pray. And the church began to pray. Our, our teams began to pray. Small groups began to pray. They called their former church in California. The church there began to pray. And this week, that couple called me, said they went to see their doctor down in Arizona, this cancer doctor at MD Anderson, and the cancer doctor came in the room, and the cancer doctor walked in the room, and here's what he was doing. He was doing like this. You imagine a cancer doctor walking in the room. He said, I don't have any words to say. The only words I know to say are miracle, 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 because the tumor is gone. Now, you expect me to do this and shout miracle? You don't expect your cancer doctor to walk in like this? Hey, what if as a people, we became known in Las Vegas as the place when you need God, when your back's against the wall, when there's no hope, when there's no solution? I don't know everything about Hope Church, but here's what I know. There are people who pray, and when they pray, the hand of God moves in power. We need to pray together. We need to pray together. Four heart cries that you see in these verses. I'm going to give them to you in four short sentences. Here's the first one. If we're going to pray in a way that moves the hand of God, here's the first cry. God, I submit to you. God, I submit to you. The first phrase is that phrase, humble themselves. God said, if my people will humble themselves... Now, this particular word, humble, it's a unique word. It's not the word commonly used to be translated humility or humble. There are other words that are used. This particular Hebrew word means to bend the knee. It describes placing yourself under, or it's the basic idea of getting low. In 2015, Pastor Travis and I made a trip on behalf of Hope Church. We'd heard about a place in West Africa that had gotten a hold of our Life of a Jesus Follower devotional guide. Out of that devotional guide, some people had been discipled. There were nine new churches that had plant, been planted with several hundred people involved in these new churches. So Pastor Travis and I went on a trip 
to go check it out, to go see what was going on. And sure enough, we began to visit all these churches and they were just like, I mean, they called themselves Hope Church. They abide, connect, share. Everything that we do, they were doing over in West Africa, making disciples, engaging in mission. But they had this new village that they wanted to take the gospel into to plant a church. And they said, we want you to go with us and introduce ourselves to this chief. So here Travis and I go over in West Africa and you can imagine Travis and I, we stand out in this West African nation pretty well. So we're going in to meet this village chief, and they said, now here's the culture in this village. The customary culture is when you go in to meet the chief, you need to make sure that wherever his eye level is, yours is below that. Now I'm almost six foot four inches tall. Most of the people in this nation in West Africa would have fit in my pocket and I'm already thinking, I got to go in here and figure out a way for my eye level to be lower than this guy's eye level. And sure enough, we walk in, they usher us into this room, and he's sitting on a stool. So it's like the limbo, man. We're down there. I mean, we're doing everything we can. And here's why would you, you say, why do you do that? That's not our culture. No, it's not our culture. But in their culture, it was very important. And here's what that bowing low meant. That bowing low was our way of recognizing his authority and our way of saying to him, we understand that you are the one in charge. When God says, if my people will humble themselves, it communicates the idea of us recognizing, God, you are God and we are not. Meaning this, we don't come into God with a demanding spirit. Here's what I want. Here's what you need to do. Here's the way I want it to happen. Here's the timeline I want it to happen on. God, we submit to you. You are God and we are not. It's the same thing Jesus prayed. Just before he went to the cross in the gospel of Luke Jesus is praying up in a garden with his disciples. Listen to what it says. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. God, if there's any other way. But listen, yet not my will. Yours be done. Where do you need God to move right now? Is it our nation? Is it our city? Is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your marriage? Let me tell you, here's where you start. God, I submit to you. You're God. I'm not. Not my will, Lord, your will be done. And it's only when we pray in submission to God's will, acknowledging that he knows what's best, that we can create an atmosphere for God to move in power. John Stott said it this way. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours. But prayer is the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Get this. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme. Your will be done. Not your will be done as long as I like it. 
Not your will be done as long as it aligns with my will. God, I submit to you. Here's the second phrase. God, I need you. It's that second word where he says pray. I think all four of these phrases speak to an attitude of prayer. This is the phrase that specifically says pray. This particular word for prayer is the most generic Hebrew word to describe the general act of praying. Prayer expresses our total dependence on God. Anytime we pray, what we're really acknowledging is, God, I need you. If you want me to prove that to you, let me ask you a question. When do you pray the most? I'll tell you when you pray the most, when you need him the most, right? You might today have not found very much time to pray. But if tomorrow you go to the doctor's office and you get that same diagnosis that our couple in our church got a few weeks ago, you go get that diagnosis, you might not have had time to pray today, but let me tell you what you are tomorrow. Tomorrow, you're a prayer warrior. The calendar just opened up to give you some time to pray. Amen? Not only that, you're blowing up everybody's phone that you know, asking them to pray for you. What wasn't a priority yesterday became a priority today. Why? Because a crisis arose. I realize I'm in need. Now I have time to pray. Here's the bottom line. We need God whether we realize it or not. We need God whether we've lost our job or not. We need God whether we have a diagnosis from a doctor or not. We need God whether our family's falling apart. We need God. And the kind of prayer that moves the heart of God is the kind of prayer that says, God, I need you. Jesus said it this way, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. The problem with this verse of scripture is we think it says, apart from me, you can't do big things because let a big thing come up in our life and we got time to pray, but on a normal average every other day, but Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. There's not one thing you and I can accomplish today on our own. William McDonald said it this way. Ordinarily, we would rather do anything than pray. But it is only when we wait before God in desperate, believing, fervent, unhurried prayer that the reviving, energizing power of the Spirit of God is poured out. How do we create an atmosphere? Here's the way. God, I submit to you. Lord, whatever you want, not what I want. And then secondly, God, I need you. Lord, if you don't do this, we're sunk. Here's third phrase. God, I want you. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, God, I submit to you and pray, God, I need you and seek my face. This word seek describes a passionate, relentless pursuit. It describes looking for something as if your life depends on it. What is he saying that we're to pursue that way? His face. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's a Hebrew expression. When it speaks to face, it can literally just mean face, but used like this, it's describing personal presence. It's figuratively describing the presence of God. 
God more than I want anything else. God, I don't just want what you can do for me. God, I want you. This phrase speaks to a passionate relational pursuit. My wife and I had dinner this week with some friends and just getting to know them better. They were getting to know us better and they asked us the question, how did you and Christy meet? So I told the story. We kind of collaborated together, told the story of how we first met at a friend's house back when we were in college. She was in a singing group with a, a guy at, at her community college, and she was over there practicing on some stuff, and I came over to visit my buddy, and, and I had been praying for a couple of weeks. God had done some stuff in my heart, and I'd actually written out a list of things that, that I wanted in a wife if God was going to provide me with a wife, and I walked in the door, and it was as if in my heart I said, God, if you didn't get the list, I'm looking at her right now. That's her. And in my heart, I wanted her. I wanted her to be my wife. Here's what that meant. Passionate pursuit. Everything in my schedule was reorganized around being in her presence. Amen. You know what that's like, right? Everything in your schedule adjusts. Matter of fact, whatever she wanted, just so happened I wanted the exact same thing. She wanted Mexican food, I wanted Mexican food. She wanted Italian food, I wanted Italian food. She wanted to go to the park, guess what? I wanted to go to the park. She wanted to go to the movies, guess what? I wanted to go to the movies. That's what this phrase is describing. Getting to the place before God where we say, God, whatever you want, Lord, that's what I want because I just want to be with you. David expresses this in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? Listen to this phrase. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now, can I be totally transparent? This is where I need the grace of God. And if you're going to be honest, you'd probably say you do too. Because a whole lot of my time, I want something other than that. And it's this continuous pursuit of him that his grace allows us to experience those moments when we desire nothing on earth but him. You know the problem for much of us in the church today? We are content with less than God. And I'm not saying that with my finger wagging at you. I'm saying that when every time my finger's doing this, there's four of them pointing right back at me. So often I find in my own life I'm content to settle for that which is less than God. What if, what if the metric when we gather is not how many people showed up? It's not if the music was all just right or the screens didn't have a glitch or the pastor didn't stumble over his words. What if the metric every time we gather was simply, did God show up? 
Did God so manifest his presence among us that when we leave this place, all we can leave saying is, I can't explain it. I don't understand it all, but here's what I know. Man, we met with God. God, we want you. Fourth phrase. God, I choose God, I submit to you. Humble yourselves. God, I need you. Pray. God, I want you. Seek my face. God, I choose you. Turn from your wicked ways. The word turn here means to turn from one thing by turning to something else. It's the idea of movement back to a point of departure. It's the biblical picture of repentance. It's saying, God, in this moment, I'm not going to choose my way. I'm not going to choose what I want. God, I choose you. I choose your way over my way. Even though sometimes it doesn't make sense, even though it may not add up on paper, God, I choose you. This phrase reveals that as his people, our hearts have wandered from his presence and fixed themselves again on the things of this world. But in order to move the hand of God, in order to pray in such a way that invites the outpouring of his spirit, we need to turn from our wicked ways. You see, repentance is is not just a one-time experience at salvation. All of us in a moment of salvation, when we came to Christ, what we did is we turned from our sin. We embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We received the forgiveness of our sins. But what happens is, moment by moment, we tend to go back over here and pick stuff up. Repentance is not once and done. It's the way of life for a Christian. And here's what I think we learn about prayer. Disobedience becomes a hindrance in our fellowship with God. And we'll never see God move in power apart from a turning from sin and choosing to follow him in obedience. We want to see God move. Here's what God said. If my people will, if my people will what? God, I submit to you. God, I need you. God, I want you. And Lord, I want to want you. And God, I choose you. Then here's the second question. I'll close with this. What happens when God's people pray? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then here's the first one. He will hear. Then I will hear from heaven. The word hear means to to have the ear of God. Don't you want to know that when things are desperate, that God is leaning in as you pray? How do we know that God's leaning in when we pray? When we've submitted to him, when we need him, when we want him, when we choose him. He says, when you do that, I'll hear. John wrote it in more detail in 1 John chapter 5. Listen to what he said. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What does it mean to ask according to his will? Submitting to him, needing him, wanting him, choosing him. 
He said, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, listen to this, we know that we have the request which we've asked from him. He hears us. Secondly, he'll restore us. Did you hear it? I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. The word forgive speaks to fellowship that's been restored. The New Testament verse of scripture that speaks to this is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, you know what confess means, right? It just means to say the same thing God says. It means to agree. It's a Greek word, homa legeo, homa meaning the same, legeo meaning to say or speak, meaning we just say the same thing God says. God, that's not your will for my life, Lord, that's sin, that's not best for me, Lord, I choose you. God says, if you'll confess your sin, he is faithful to, and righteous to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll hear us. He'll restore us. And then listen to this last one. He'll heal us. Then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The word heal means to make whole. To make fresh, to make new. What a great word for our sick, unhealthy, broken world. God said, if my people will, here's what I'll do. I'll hear. I'll restore. And I'll heal. How does it happen? It starts in this room. It starts with you that are watching online. God, I submit to you. God, I need you. God, I want you. God, I choose you. One last quote, Ian Bounds. Listen to what he said. The story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. Here's what that means. You dig deep enough in history, in any moment in time, when God has moved powerfully, you dig deep enough. Let me tell you what you'll always find. God's people coming together. God, we submit to you. God, we need you. God, we want you, and God, we choose you.